Welcome to the IBM Podcast Network. Ram Singh is a farmer in a small village in India. One morning, he woke up to a loud noise coming from over his head. He got out of bed and looked out of the window. There he saw that there was a giant spaceship hovering over his hut with the logo of the Indian government on it. It was lowering a giant steel cage that would fit neatly around his hut. Alarmed, Ram Singh rushed out looking for someone to speak to and spotted a babu in a safari suit. What's going on? he asked the babu. What are you doing? The babu said, "We are lowering this cage outside your hut so that you are trapped inside. You can't go out and no one else can get inside." "Why are you doing that?" asked poor Ram Singh. The man in a safari suit just laughed at him. He said, "You fool, we have been doing it for almost 70 years now. This is the story of agriculture in India." Welcome to the Seen and the Unseen, our weekly podcast on economics, politics, and behavioral science. Please welcome your host, Amit Varma. Welcome to the Seen and the Unseen. my weekly podcast on the seen and unseen effects of public policy this week i want to talk about some of the laws around agriculture in india specifically two laws one which restricts entry into agriculture by preventing the entry of big corporations into farming and two which stops farmers from taking an escape route from farming by not allowing agricultural land to be sold for non agricultural purposes What is the seen effect of these laws? The seen effect of such restrictions on agriculture is that farmers are protected from greedy, rapacious capitalists and an important sector of our economy, agriculture, is safeguarded. All this sounds most noble, but is it possible that these regulations are actually hurting both the farmers themselves and our nation? To discuss the unseen effects of these regulations, I have two guests on the show with me. Pawan Srinath is a fellow at the Takshashila Institution and Karthik Shashidhar is a renowned quant with a cult following, a management consultant, a columnist statement and adjunct faculty at IIM Bangalore. Guys, welcome to the show. Pawan, give me some background on how we have regulated farming in India over the last 70 years. So, Ever since independence, we've had this idea that fam- farmers are the backbone of the country. They are poor. They need to be taken care of, and they are mm. suffering through various uh, because of various reasons, right? So, uh, in order to do this, there have been heavy restrictions placed on who can do farming. So, the fear is, you know, you can have a company which comes and takes land away from people. You can have uh, one of us who lives in a city who has more access to resources who goes in and cheats the poor farmer out of their uh, wealth right because land is perhaps all that a few people own uh, so so that's the intention of why uh, only farmers and collectives of farmers are allowed to uh, own land and practice farming uh, and even unless you have I think different states have different rules but unless you have an ancestor or a parent or a grandparent who has done farming or ha- still owns farmland can you get back into this I must remind you here that Amitabh Bachchan is a farmer so uh, more of us are farmers and we you know Karthik <laughs> so what are the unseen effects of this what is the problem with protecting the farmer in this manner See the thing is uh, there are 
two roles that a farmer has to play here. What the problem with this regulation is that it forces a farmer to be an entrepreneur. Uh, and there is a scene effect there. There's a noble thing that like it comes from on the back of the zamindari system where they said like, oh, you, you don't want the farmer to be a slave. You don't want him to like be farming for someone else. You need to own your land and farm for yourself and things. Right? So you're for- forcing everyone to be entrepreneurs. Now, being a farmer and being a businessman are two completely unrelated skills. And what is happening now is that the farmer whose primary skill is farming is also being forced to be a businessman. And he's and there are a large number of risks associated with farming. And not only does the farmer have to take care of his crop and apply his crop signs to the farm, he also needs to be tracking the markets, uh, be uh, hedging against the risks and so on. So the, the so we are overburdening the farmer by forcing him to be an entrepreneur. Right. Just to add on that, so there's uh, the risk of weather, right? And in a country where we can't even predict the monsoon really well right now, uh, there's. Uh, Price risks, as you mentioned, there can be all kinds of uh, shortages, infrastructure problems. I mean, we are f- making them forced entrepreneurs and then se- sort of celebrating that as a virtue, right? Imagine if every single software engineer in the country was not allowed to form a company, not allowed to form a group, but just work entirely on their own. Uh, even over there, sure, you have technology to at least network people and you can't even network farmers. But... That's the big challenge, right? I mean, what software would India be producing? What technology would we be making if no one was uh, allowed to form a company? Yeah, and then there's a cash flow cash flow problem. So right now, the fa- way farming works is okay. You own your land. Beginning of the season, you have to invest to buy seeds, buy equipment, buy fertilizer, and then you farm. And then, in order to get paid, you just have to pray and hope that you have a good crop and it fetches a good price. So, uh, continuing Pawan's analogy. Imagine that software engineers in India were not allowed to take a salary and they could only get uh, paid in terms of dividends from uh, or profits from what they would make at the end of the year, right? So farming is like that. So what, uh, to continue on that analogy, what would happen, I imagine, is after a period of a year, a lot of software engineers would be out of jobs, would be broke and they'd move on to other professions. Is that is that what is happening in farming and is it possible for farmers to actually escape farming? Actually, if that happens, I don't think it's a bad thing hmm. because right now you have like uh, some 40 or 50% of the country producing 15% of the GDP. So if if you were to have 20% producing 15%, those, 15, those 20% would be making a lot more than what the farmers are making now. So it's not a bad thing. But again, you have restrictions in other markets. Because of the restriction in land that Pawan mentioned that you can't buy land unless you're a farmer. The number of the market for farmland is not particularly liquid, and it's hard for the farmer to kind of uh, sell and like get away from his capital and so on, right? Right. So the value of that land will accrue to the person who has the ability to change the use of that land, which right. is typically some guy sitting in a government office somewhere, right? Uh, rather than the owner of the land, right? So he can't. He is not even in full possession of the wealth. So a farmer who's in debt and commits suicide might actually be sitting on debt capital, to use Hernando de Soto's words, which he yeah. can't actually make use of absolutely but to go back to this every single country which has increased in in prosperity which has increased incomes has had a large exodus of people out of farming and into 
typically industry, but out of farming into more productive things, right? And in this process, there's more skilling that is happening. There is security that is given. In fact, the start of, you know, modern ideas of social security comes from uh, sort of Bismarck's Germany, right? Where you have uh, sort of industries going up and then sort of a conversation on, okay, some sort of support should be provided. So the, all those things that we think of as now as a part of this table, evolve from that idea of first you have a company they give you security by giving you a salaried income um, and uh, they, they give you benefits you get regularity you have predictability and predictability is one of the most wonderful things in our lives right I mean those of us who have a lot of it can take it for granted and want adventure and spontaneity but I wouldn't inflict that on and no farmer has that and it's you know some of us take unpredictability and entrepreneurship by choice we like to take those risks but farmers don't have a choice in the matter yeah. And uh, and uh, coming back to an earlier point, right, like apart from not having a choice in the ma- matter, what it also does is like a farmer is forced to do things he's unsuited to do. Things like how do I sell it to, who do I sell it to, do I sell it in the local market or do I take it to Bombay or do I like uh, kind of just uh, sell it to the guy next door and there's so many decisions and what crop should I plant this year? These are all things that are like hardcore business decisions. They need to be done by hardcore business people. And you're forcing the poor farmer to do all of that. Now, the counterview to that is that if you just allow others into farming, if you allow, say, big companies like a Reliance and a Tata to get into farming, they buy out all the poor farmers and, you know, then the farmers don't have their land anymore and uh, so on. And you have these big conglomerates controlling farming. So... I don't know if they necessarily need to buy out the farmers, right? So right. you can have interesting architectures around that. You can have farmers as, I don't know, uh, shareholders in a company that is right. fo- uh, formed locally. You can mm-hmm. have uh, farmers who are given sort of guarantees of various sorts. Right. And the idea is, yes, all of that is hard. Yes, sort of uh, enforcement of contracts is hard. But we have so many people who are happily taking salaries and not complaining and exactly. they're not necessarily getting cheated out. So this idea that somehow a corporation can come and take over everything just right. because bargaining rights are different right. is wrong. And the other, the unseen effect of all of this, right, is people repeatedly ask for the benevolent hand of the government, which is right. never terribly benevolent, right? So yeah. you want intervention in price because price is uncertain. Right. You want uh, intervention for crop failure because of weather, because that is uncertain. So every single problem, and we've listed all these problems, the automatic solution everyone's asking for is government intervene, right? So one intervention begets many, many other begets interventions. Another. So... Since this logic seems so infallible to me that, you know, you give the farmer some security, don't force him to be an entrepreneur and so on. What are the obstacles to um, the the policy change that you recommend? Uh, Who are the interest groups who want farmers to remain impoverished and in the condition that they are? See, the main interest group there is the government. As Pawan mentioned, like, because the farmers have an uncertain future, lots of risks, and they keep asking for the benevolent hand of the government. Mm. If the farmer slot becomes better, mm. if he gets paid a regular salary, and if mm. he doesn't have to face all these risks that he faces now, and maybe he has an employer, he'll stop asking the government for its benevolence. Mm. And when you stop asking the government for benevolence, you're taking power away from the government. So it's not in the interest of the government to uh, to actually reform this law and reduce the need for their own benevolence. So in a sense, what we've done, I think, is to get rid of the ills of the zamindari system, we sort of nationalized the zamindari system, right? So right. you have a national government, which is the Uber zamindar. Yeah. And that's what they're doing. They're extending patronage, right? In the yeah. form of benevolence. Yeah. And so you kill a patronage network, 
their power goes away so educate me on this what percentage of in the indian population depends on agriculture and what what are the comparable percentages in advanced western countries okay so here's the number that keeps floating around right 60% of india depends yeah. on farming right two fallacies over there that mm. 60% number is a bit old the number is actually reducing mm. second is even people who are token dependent on farming are actually getting most of their income from non farm sources right so right. they're doing odds and ends small service jobs they're sort of participating in the rural economy in various ways and the other thing which is sort of hidden is um you go to rural india you don't find as many young people anymore people between the ages of 20 and say 35 because mm. they're off in the city trying to work yeah. so sons of farmers daughters of farmers are not doing farming so if you actually do an age profile that 60% comes first of all starts with something like 50 and then that drops down to about 20% or lower and that depends of course state by state what are the implications of that the implications of that is you need new sources of jobs and right. india has been bad at providing that the informal sector in the country absorbs a lot so we don't have a traditional sort of a labor strike Uh, or a labor movement that way i mean we don't have the kind of insane unemployment rates that other countries do but there's a desperate need for uh, more jobs and which uh, which specific uh, uh, in the context of the demographics you mentioned right if you have older generations of farmers who continue farming but the kids go away to the towns and the cities to work in industries etc what happens to farming then yeah uh, so you have a massive adverse selection right so you right. have people who are desperate and have are unable to do anything else for a variety of reasons yeah. who are sort of stuck in farming yeah. and anyone who can do something better exits actually we have we can see what's happening there in commercial agriculture where mm. you can you for profit farming is allowed let's mm. say in so called cash crops like coffee and so on mm. so the big story about um, how some coffee companies have grown is that like you have all these coffee farmers whose sons and daughters don't want to be coffee farmers and then like they just get acquired uh, and the easiest people for them to sell their land to is this big coffee plantation company right and uh, and those guys employ their workers and so on and and they they've been managing it and and i think it's been doing rather well so i think that the plantation sector which i think is still open for commercial investment shows the way to what agriculture and you don't have this kind of distress uh, you don't have coffee plantation workers committing suicide or so on they're workers right they're workers on an employer uh, they might right. be committing suicide because their employer might not be treating him well they're not committing suicide because a coffee crop failed because they're, they're workers are working on a salary and so on exactly so they have that security as right. all of us do yeah. in whatever and, jobs that we have of course there are problems i mean yeah. there are problems in the software sector as well yeah. but uh, i think it's uh, unarguable that their lot is better than structurally uh, much better the lot of you know a rice farmer in any state in the country so i interrupted you a little while back so you were saying that the 60% figure is for uh, false and is probably on a spectrum between 60 and 20 somewhere right uh, what is it in like say germany usa single digit percentages we talk 3% 4% so there's this idea that we need so many farmers for mm. food security the yeah. the food security thing uh, right. still remains as a narrative right no you need There's a much smaller group. number of people to do the farming. You need more people in other sectors. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, countries are managing with much smaller numbers. China has done a brilliant job of moving humongous number of people out of uh, farming. I think now China might have dropped to single digits or they're in their early double digits. So, if India gets its act together, 
and uh, I don't want to put cause and mix cause and effect over here. There's, it's cyclical. Sure. But if we get our act together, we grow, we provide new jobs in industry and so on. In 2030 years, we should be able to achieve what China did. So it's not unthinkable, and we are already sort of automatically doing it in spite of you know bad laws. Right. So finally. I'll ask each of you, what would your reform suggestion be in, 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 in this context? I think one important reform would be in terms of liberalizing the market for agricultural land. Mm. Even if we were to not reform this whole thing of, I mean, Pawan mentioned about not uh, uh, changing land use and stuff, but if everybody if is allowed to invest in agricultural land, the market for agricultural land will automatically become far more liquid. And that will enable any farmer who wants to exit the system and who currently is not able to do so mm -hmm. to exit in a more graceful manner. And that will possibly make things far more efficient. Yeah, the, that I completely agree. The single biggest thing is liberalize the land market. Uh, allow more people to buy and sell. Allow uh, different modes of... Uh, it need not be a, uh, a sale per se. It could be, um, you know... Uh, some form of a land bank that's formed such that even if value accrues over time, uh, dividends from that accrual can go to right. people who originally owned it. So a lot of things can be done. But yeah, that's not just an agriculture problem, but a pan-India problem, liberalizing the land markets. But I think that's the single biggest So thing. here's what I don't understand. Liberalizing the land market is something that would actually be in the interest of big business. Now, for the last few maybe decade and a half, government has essentially been run by interest groups and you could say run by big business. So what is really the obstacle here? I mean... Okay, so I think uh, uh, liberalization is in favor of all big businesses. Hmm. When you have... A but when you have interest... But it's not in... What is in favor of all businesses hmm. is not in favor of interest groups. Specific interest, yeah. So what's happening now is that because of you had the Land Acquisition Act and now the, there are amendments to that and so on, it's in favor of the special interest groups hmm. and not in favor of all big businesses. Right. And so it's like kind of... Uh, uh, what we tend to see, the scene is that special interest group equal to big businesses. Right. But the unseen is that special interest group is a subset of big business mm. and it depends on the government in power and so on, right? So if you were to take out the ability of the government to intervene on behalf of the special interest groups, it is not in the interest of either the government or the special interest group, but it's in the interest of big business. So you need to separate out this thing between big business and uh, and the groups. Right. I want to pull out an analogy that my colleague Nitin Pai uses. Yeah. And that's about uh, how, uh, because regulations are so dense, because it's so hard to do business and so hard to operate in the land markets. Incumbent players who are successful are successful because they have created knee-sized loopholes, right? So yeah. they've managed to get themselves into this right. entire thing. Hmm. So, and they're now protected from competition. So yeah. you have big real estate houses, big businesses who know how to play this game. Mm. Uh, and they've, you know, set their entire thing together. So now if you liberalize it, they lose their incumbent advantage. They have to face stiff competition. Nobody wants to do that. Awesome. Thank you so much for your insights, Karthik and Pawan. Pleasure having you on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. The laws in India around agriculture are actually a perfect example of how good intentions often lead to bad outcomes. And these are outcomes that could have been predicted by any competent economist given the kind of incentives created by these laws. Just because an effect is unseen does not mean that it is unforeseeable. On that note, I'll leave you for this week.
Next week, Amit Varma will be talking to Suya Shrai, an economic analyst about the seen and the unseen effects of demonetization. For more, go to seenunseen.in.